Okay, so we're going to start at the beginning of Klali Harad. I'm not trying to give you a two-week set of rules by which you can decide all of halacha. <laughs> um, what I want to do is, uh, let's, let's put it in context. So, right, with, um, we looked at a sugya and thought about, like, what it would mean if we addressed the sugya morally, and we gave content every moral content to every position. And then we looked at a sugya and we said, what would it mean if we gave conceptual content to every position? And now I want to think, what if we looked at a sugya and like, what if you look at this guy and you're purely a mechanic? Your job is, right, you have no, right, your job is to look at the sugya and figure out what the force parameters are so that you know which position is more powerful. And really, the best way to look at it would be to not know which position you prefer. I have no biases whatsoever about content. Right? Your job is just to... And so there is a vision of halacha that looks that way, which is to say, let's look at halacha as an algorithm. And the goal, right, and the goal is to, right, and we have, you know, we have the simplest rule of that regard, right, is to say, yachid rabim halacha kirabim. Right, that's the rule everyone knows. Right, majority rules. Uh, the second rule everyone knows is, b'chambi melkum b'chil in a mishnah. Okay, if you're more sophisticated, so you know that we do sometimes paskin like b'chambi, and that we often paskin like minorities. Uh, right? Although we have rules the other way. So the question is, like, what do you do with the rules when the rules have, when the rules have exceptions? How powerful are the rules when you have, when you have exceptions? Now, those rules are also challenged in other ways. Um, like, for example, Yachid Rabim might get to figure out like, who, measure, right? who, who measures. What happens if it's Rabim and Rabim? Do we go, right? is it just a vote? Right? Or is it that there's a rule that majority, that there's a rule that a plurality beats an individual, but once you get above one, everybody, right, it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. Right, you have the question of, right, of who counts, and right, that's one like, you know, how many times have come in, and you have another rule which says that actually we divide by schools, and that's what happened with Beishan and Hill in a sense, right, that once, you, once you're part of a school, so everybody just, is just carrying out their tradition. So, right, so what you really need is independent votes. So there are all the ways in which those rules can be complicated, and we could say that, you know, Beishan Hill is... Certainly irrelevant post-Talmudically, because Beishavid Hill don't exist anymore, so what rule does, that doesn't give us much, much of a clue. And Yachid Rabim maybe only applies in context we don't have it anymore. It only applies on a Beitin. Right? Maybe it only applied when there weren't enough Talmudic Chacham in the world that you could always find one other person to agree with you. Right? It's not much of a rule. It just says you lose unless you have one other... Right? Unless you can find one other person to agree with you. Okay, right. There are people who paskin when absolutely no one else in the world agrees with them. Uh, I always have difficulty with that. Like you know, there should be like some degree of humility, right? If you can't, if you can't convince a single other person in the world to agree with you, something is a little bit odd. Um, okay, so I want to take you through, really tonight. I want to take you through just a um, a couple of basic texts that set up rules. And talk about like all the problems that are involved in understanding this and what we've done already, right? So what we've done is I'm I'm, reduce, I'm taking a rule, I'm reducing it to a text. The text is always subject to interpretation. Right? A rule, a rule, until it's into words, you can say no everyone knows what the rule means. But once you put it into words, it becomes a text and it's subject to the same kind of ambiguity as the thing that it's supposedly talking about. Right? So that's right, so there's a trick I'm pulling out very immediately by presenting this to you as a text. Okay, so my goal is this week, I'm going to try and present a couple of texts, and then, um, for those of you who've been here through, right, know that I usually underestimate how long it will take. Uh, but my goal is we'll do that this week, maybe we'll finish whatever we want, and then next week I want to do a very specific set of rules, 
which are the rules about um, how we paskin um, with, with what the Gemara calls a stam and a stam and a non-stam and a non-stam text. Um, and then after we've done that, we're going to plug it back into the ongoing conversation about what the rules are for employer-employee law. But but I want to have a discussion about how this type of approach works before I even give you a write an example, and then we'll plug right. Then you know what it could look like, and what the problems are. And we'll take it back to a sugi and see if we want to apply it, and, and or if we want to defeat it. Okay, so here's the text. Right? It's the text you probably all all are all familiar with. The Gemara of Azara does Zayin and Aleph. There's a bright there, right? Sanu Rabbanan. Hanishal lechacham v'timei lo yishal lechacham v'taher lechacham v'asar lo yishal lechacham v'yatir. Okay, if you ask the question to a chacham, who, whatever qualifies as a chacham, and he said it was tamei, so you can't ask another chacham and say it's tahor. If you ask a question to a chacham who say that it's, a, that, it, that it's a sur, then you can't ask a question to a chacham and have him be matir. Okay, so this is usually called a prohibition against shita shopping. Right, you're not supposed to do that. But, and I've wrote, written about this several times, so you can, uh, right, so you can, you can look at this in print. Many, if not most, Rishonim think that this is not a prohibition on the asker, but a prohibition on the aski. It's not that you can't ask, it's that they're not allowed to answer. Now, what are they not allowed to answer? They're only not allowed, right now, they're conditions, right? Why would you be allowed to ask if they're never allowed to answer? The answer is they are, of course, allowed to answer, but they're only allowed to answer within a particular set of parameters. They have to show that it's an egregious error, and not just the judgment, right? not just the judgment error. I, that's just starting to show like the complexity of it. The text is usually cited very simply. Uh, right? Nobody quotes Haseh Kharab, for example, which is a very common right, phrase people quote the Mishnah in a vote, but doesn't seem to mean that ever. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a literary convention. Haseh Kharab means ask all your questions to the same person, as opposed to just don't ask the same question to different people. Uh, you get already that, it's talking, right, that it might be talking about a specific object as opposed to a principle. Right, it's not right. It's not clear. You can't ask that. You, know, you let's right. I have two. Right, I I have uh, five pots of food, all with this. Right, all with the same kasher shaila. Right, so it's not clear that that, that I can't ask first person. Right, ask the first rabbi. What do you think about this pot? And he says trafe. Well, then if he says if he says trafe, you know, at least I don't want to ask him the question about the next pot. Right, so you just you start with the cheap pot. Uh, right, and then right, those those are all, and then like deeper questions. Um, which are really interesting, what, what get me are questions where you ask a rabbi who doesn't answer within your uh, practical or moral universe. Right, you, ask, right, you ask a rabbi a question which is built on a certain kind of moral assumption, and they give you an answer which just doesn't live in your universe. Right? The example I usually talk about, because it came up for me, was somebody asking a, a, a contraception question, on the assumption that it's valuable for women to have careers. Not realizing that the person they were asking didn't necessarily agree. And so they got an absolute no answer until you have X number of children. And it's not, it's not a wrong answer. I can't say that like, you totally misread the text. It was just a complete mismatch of expectations between the, right, between the, between the, the, the asker and the asking. So can you, right, so it's like saying, can you, can you, uh, as an ASCII, can you revisit the question on the grounds that the answer was wrong for that person? Okay, lumdishly we could talk about all the way, right? The usual lumdish way of separating it is, is the reason for the prohibition uh, that a status has been applied to the object by the rule, prior ruling, 
or that it's a diminution in respect for the first ruler if you overrule it. And there are all sorts of nafkimidas about this, right? What happens if the person says, it's okay if you overrule me? What happens if it's not about an object? Right? Can there be such a thing as isur, something which is not an object? Right? All sorts of, right? That's just, that's just introduction, right? Before we get to the actual business we're talking about. It just happens the text starts that way. Um, okay, now we get to the text you really want to care about. Hayushnayim. What happens if there are two? Two what? Presumably two chachamim. Okay, and now we're going to have a, um, a hypothetical circumstance where you ask the two chachamim the question simultaneously. Okay, they're all both in front of you and you ask the question and each of them somehow understands. <laughs> um, okay, great. So each, each of them somehow understands that, that, right, that the, other person isn't a- the other person didn't answer first, right? Because the other person answered first, right? Then we have a, we have a problem because you asked one question, right? But maybe, maybe it's just if you ask the question simultaneously, it doesn't matter which answer is first. Like at that point, they both know they're in a context where, uh, right, they're both known in a context where both of them have to, where both of them are entitled to answer. Okay, so what we've done by, by making the case, two people, we've eliminated the problem, either the problem of honor or the problem of the object itself becoming prohibited. Okay, and they disagree. One of them says Tameh, one of them says Tahor, one of them says Tahor, one of them says Mutar. So we have a decision procedure. Okay. So if one of them is more numerous than the other, so that's obviously a separate problematic, right? How can one, how can it one be greater by minyan than the others? Okay, right. So we have to right, try and reinterpret minyan and say this is not this is not a uh, a yachid verabim circumstance because that can't be what minyan means. We can say it's a number of it's it's number of years and age, a little bit odd. We can claim that it's the number of students they have. That will always get you into the question of like, it doesn't matter how good the students are, doesn't matter how many people you register for a federal right, food program, doesn't matter, how, doesn't matter how many people pass the last test, right? right that's, so these are obviously problematic, um, problematic categories. And Gadol Chachma, so, you know, both of them obviously have to recognize that. So, okay, so our, our first decision procedure is, uh, right, is that we look for who is greater, and we have these criteria of greatness that are ambiguous on themselves. Uh, and our second is some kind of apparently objectively numerical criteria, which we don't really understand it either. And whoever's greater in that category, we follow them. And the other is the Mahmir wins. Okay, that's a fine decision procedure. Right? You ask two people, right, you ask two, whoever's more Mahmir wins. Right? You have to hope that, you know, that they're not, um, they don't really care about winning. Because if you're winning, it's like an open bids environment, right? Whoever, right? You know that you'll win if you give them more Mahmir positions. <laughs> Everybody has to outbid the other person with a more uh, with a more mafia position, right? We'll have to look at the reverse of that, right? Because there are contexts where we say halacha kedivrahem mekil. We'll talk right. So does that also mean right that if you want to win, you have to right, you offer the most mekil position? Okay. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karf, however, introduces a um, a new criteria, and he says b'shel Torah halacha cheramachmir, b'shel sofrim halacha cheramekal. Right, that it depends whether it's. Um, well, it says it's Bishal Torah or Sofrim, so that can mean, right, and, and most people will understand it as talking about Deoraisas versus Derabanans. Um, probably most of you know that the word Divrei Sofrim in the Rambam is much more problematic. It seems to introduce a category of Deoraisas in some way. Let's assume for now, although that won't hold up entirely, that it means Deoraisas versus Derabanans. 
Okay, so if, right, if you ask a question, the two rabbis simultaneously. If it's right, if it's a, if the question if should be correct, that says if it's the oraisa, then you um, right, then you follow the machmir. If it's the rabbanan, you follow the makir. Okay, so now our question is, right, really we had right, we had two rules in the anonymous in the anonymous uh, brayta, right? We had right, two decision criteria that are hierarchical. First, you decide who is greater in something. And if that fails, you follow the machmir. If Yeshua ben Karka comes along and says, no, the rule, the, the, the rule is, the, is the right to versus the Rabbanan, is he modifying only the second rule? And his system is first determine who's greater, and if that fails, then we distinguish between the right and the Rabbanan, or does he think that the rule about greatness disappears entirely and is replaced simply by a decision procedure of who is, who is machmir and who is mekil? Okay, that's an ambiguity in the text. Probably the answer is that he's only replacing the second rule, he agrees with the first rule, but that, right, that's an ambiguity in the text. Okay, then, you know, the interesting thing is because now we have a machloket between two positions that appear to us simultaneously because they're in the same text. So how do we decide who wins? The problem, right? Now we need, now we need a meta-text, right, to tell us, right which, which is consensus. To tell us, right? To tell us about how we decide, right? How we decide this position. Um, so, if we think that Rishon Ben Karcha is just modifying the uh, is, modif- is modifying the um, the second case only, right? It means he, he, everyone agrees that the first principle is Gadol B'Chachmav Minyan, and then, right, the second decision is that. So, Rishon Ben so you can end up passing like Rishon Ben Karcha if you already passing like Rishon Ben Karcha. Right, because on the Oraisa, he says the Machmir wins. Well, he agrees with the Machmir. Follow the Machmir. On the Rabbanas, he says the Mekil wins. So we pass him like him, because he's Mekil. It's a kind of interesting thing that we end up saying, Halakha Kirishu Ben Karta. Hang on a sec, but is, is he a Yachid against the Rabbim? I don't know, right? Why is the text right? That depends on what we think anonymous text means, right? So that'll push us to next week, right? What's the relationship between anonymous text and, uh, and non-anonymous text? Okay. But am I right? That the appearance of a um, of two opinions in a text is equivalent to asking the same question to two rabbis simultaneously. No, because in the text, if if you assume that the later person in the text knew the position of whoever the earlier position was, right, then they they have their position with the knowledge of the other one. Right? Yeah. And meaning they're not, it's at a minimum not reciprocal, the relationship between the two opinions. Okay. I don't know if that should matter. Could be, right? It could be. Or it could be that the rule that we're being given here has nothing whatsoever to do with substance. Right? It's a rule about respect, and maybe the rule about respect only applies in presence. Right? 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 Maybe each, maybe a literary thing, right? We understand all literary presentations are artificial. <coughs> right? They're already mediated by people, right? By people who are explaining what they are, right? So maybe, maybe, right? Maybe this text, right, should be understood as a very, very narrow, right, principle dealing with resolution of live questions in the presence, right, in the presence of two people with the difficulty, like, you know, Gadol Ben Ebuchafmav Minyan, of course, you know, like you don't want the other, you don't want the other person to find out that you just thought that, that X is greater, right? <laughs> X is greater than Y. So, you know, right? so there's a bias towards deciding like the Machmir, right? Because then you can claim you're not making a decision. Right? But it's a wholly different way of looking at it, right? If we think about it as just negotiating, right? As right, if we think it's a case-based phenomenon, right? Right? That it's just right because it's something that inheres in the object, 
So that only applies when there's an actual Shiloh that's been asked, and it can never apply theoretically. Okay, the whole, right, we, have, we have two grounds of understanding the, the right of, of understanding how the text might work. The first line of the text, if we assume this is a continuous text, right? The first line of the text we said could be understood either as somehow an object acquires the status of prohibition or tuma, and that's why you, the second person can't overrule it. And another was that it's a question of respect. Right? So maybe that only applies right, to cases where that's relevant. There's an individual case and there's real people. No individual case and real people, this text is irrelevant. And it doesn't provide us any information at all. Uh, right? I think that's probably right. 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 By the way, we could also limit the text more and claim that the rule that you can't ask for a second opinion only applies when both parties are present. And there's no rule at all about asking two different people in different contexts. Right. We, could limit, we could limit it further that way. Uh, right. Obviously, another not communion, by the way, so which way to think about it is whether it's reversed. Right. This only tells you, the first line only tells you what happens if one person is strict and the second person is lenient. What about vice versa? Okay, let's also talk about right, what. How does that? How would that make sense like, if they're together and then you have how you Because then. Right, how you won't work, right? But just an example, right? Right, the first case could be reversed. Be rever could be reversed that way. Yes. Okay. So, what I want to suggest is we can take this what seems like a really formative text and essentially apply right limit it to contexts that are artificial. You have to ask the question to both of them simultaneously, and fundamentally irrelevant to the way in which any posik is deciding. Right, we can right. So here's, like, it's a very nice text. It sounds very nice, but really, it has nothing to do with it has nothing to do with anything. Okay, good. But the problem is, it keeps getting cited. So that's it. Right, I'll just figure out what to do with it. Yes, David. This is true, right? So we haven't talked about why there would be a distinction between Dereisos and Dereisos. Right? That's a fair thing, right? Why did right? Why did Rishul Ben Karka make this distinction? Why does the whoever the first person is not make this distinction? Uh, right? As David points out correctly, right? That, so on the one you'll say Dereisos are more serious. On the other hand. We have places where they say, "Oh, people think derisos are more serious." <laughs> so we have to correct that, right? And you end up with, with like with a mess if people think the way David does, uh, right? So that's a so that's a good question, also. Like, what you know, um, right? What is the criteria for saying there's a difference between derisos and derabana? And then, of course, you have you know the Lombish question, which is if you think that this text has something to do with Suffolk, Right, with, with your doubt about with being a situation of doubt about truth, which no one has mentioned. Right, no one has mentioned any. Right, no one has mentioned why it is that you felt it necessary to ask the question. But if we assume that you feel it necessary to ask the question because you are in doubt, so then, right, so then the question might be about the rules of Sveikot are, and of course the first question you ask about the rule about Suffolk Deraiso Lefumra is whether it's Deraiso or Drabana. As if it's Dereisa, okay, we understand. But if it's Durabanan, so we're back to our question of why did the rabbis choose to make it that way? Uh, right, and, why did, right, and, and as David correctly points out, they sometimes don't. They make Durabanans go like follow the Mahmir also. Right, so that's a, right, so it's complicated that way. Okay. So what we have on page two is a whole set of um, Rishonim um, trying to make sense out of, um, 
out of this text, not really interested in the first several cases in the kind of issues I brought up, but just trying to say whatever case it's talking about. Right, what does this rule, right? And really, they want to, they want to apply, they want to see whether this text can apply beyond its obvious boundaries. And so they come up with a really interesting question. What happens if you have two alternate texts in the Talmud? In the Talmud itself, right? The Talmud sometimes reports alternates, uh, right? Sometimes it's the language of Lishna Achrina. Sometimes it's the language, it's a language, uh, the language is Ika de Amri. Uh, sometimes the language is Ikadamasne, which is a little different than Ikadamri, right? Ikadamri means there are differentiating opinions. Ikadamasne means that there are different opinions as to in what context the previous statement was said. Okay, so let's leave with a simple case, Ikadamri, which means like we have some people reported that the ruling was this way, some people reported the ruling was that way. Okay, so here we have a, uh, a complication that's going to become important next week which is, are we asking a question about the decision procedure based on the substance of the issue? Or are we asking a question based on decoding the editorial policy of the Babli? And we say there are rules here. We say there are rules here because this is, right, this case is a doubt just like the case when you're standing in front of two rabbis. And so, you have, so we have general decisions for deciding doubt. Or are we saying, no, look, this is a text. It's a text which we're assuming is intended in some way to embody um, halakha. And so we have to figure out in what way did the editor of the text expect you to decipher the halakha, assuming that we don't just disagree with the editor. Okay, now that question is more often asked about the Mishnah than the Gemara. Uh, right, there's a huge academic debate about whether the Mishnah is intended as a halakha book or not. Uh, but the assumption, as we'll see next week, the assumption of at least certain Amorayim was that the Mishnah was intended as a halacha book. And that you can decode it, even though the Mishnah itself very rarely says, right, or like Brighto, right? Like we just read a text. The Brighto said the first person said this, or Rishul bin Karko said that. The text never told you what to rule like. Then an Amora comes along and says, no, the halacha follows this ruling in the text. So that means, how do they know that? Do they know it from internal data in the text? Or do they know it externally? So the, the so the, the Rishonim are going to come along and say right and try and apply a text which is about something that's not a text and see if you can set it up to right as rules for right for people who are not in a text to decide something about a text. Okay, is that reasonably clear? Okay, so let's take a look at the way the Rush sums up the positions. So Mikan, based on the text we just read, Yaposek Rabinatam. The Chol Ika de Amri Bishal Torah Halokha Achramachmir. Right? So Rabbi Natam says, Rishul ben Karko's rule about what happens in a live question applies to Ikeda Amri's in the Gemara, that if the Ikeda Amri is about a Diorisa, then we follow the Machmir position, and if the Ikeda Amri is about a Drabanan, we follow the Mekil position. Okay, so that's right, that's, that's his principle. The easiest way to understand it is that we just have a general principle about Safek, and this is just a standard case about Safek, and all Ikeda Amri's are equal. Nothing about the writing of the text other than using the word Ika Amri salt, right, tells, gives you any clue. But now so Rashi comes... Also, pardon? that either assumes that, um, assumes that he was talking not just about the, the second statement, but also the first one, or it assumes that in the Ika Damri you're also 
not able, right? Sometimes, many times, ikadamris are anonymous, right? But sometimes they're not. Sometimes you have multiple positions that are not anonymous, right? And then you can imagine applying the is gadol bechachma or. I don't think there are. I think he's dealing specifically with the case where they're both anonymous, right? We just present two versions of the Talmud. They might. Each version will cite somebody by name. So the assumption is that if they're named, then... It's a different category. Then, yeah, we're not interested Then you in apply the, the yeah. you know, whatever standard rules for... Assuming there are any rules, yes. Yeah. Okay, but right, but right now we're just... Right, we're, we're trying... Right, but, so, but right, Tom's solution is very simply. So it's like, you know, the text doesn't... When the text says Ikadamri, the text is giving each position equality, and now we have a general rule. I, I assume that's the easiest way to understand Rita Tom. Raja comes along and says... Um, Rashi says, under Rises, you follow the Machmir position, but under Rabbanas, you follow whichever position is presented second or last. That assumes that the editor has a certain amount of power. Now, we could do it two ways. We could say the editor chose to exercise their power of ordering only in the Rabbanan cases because they knew it was irrelevant in Derisa cases. Or it could be that the editor chooses, always chooses to exercise their power, but we reject the editor in derisive cases, and we just say, no, we follow the Machmir anyway. Right? Probably the simplest way of reading it is to claim that the editor only exercises their power in Durabadani cases, and we follow the editor. Okay? Am I making sense to you, Dan? Yeah? Okay, good. So now ask, right, if you know, like I'm, we're throwing you into the middle of, right, the middle of this, right, to so ask if I'm... Uh, Okay, the Riva comes along and says, All Ikad Amris, right, the first one is the first one is correct, and the second one is just presented as a yeah, this other way of doing it also. Right? So Riva says, actually the first one always wins. Right? right so you have three the first where the first person says it depends on the substance of the question, the second person says on Diorisis it depends on the substance. Right, which one is more machmir? But in Drabanans, it's a question of order, and the last one wins. And the third person says, no, the first one always wins. Uh, why? Because he says, Kiravashi Sider Lashon Ham Rubim, Vaikar Tfila, the Lashon Hayyudim, Vatafel, Omar Yeshomrim. Because he says, he, the Ravashi is the traditional editor of the Talmud, and we assume that Ravashi, or whoever the editor of the Talmud is, deliberately set this up to follow a pattern of prior texts. And the way the pattern he sets up is that the first text represents what is literarily presented as the majority. Right? Care, it doesn't necessarily mean it was actually the majority because there's one person doing this. Right? But it serves the same literary function as an actual majority. And the second text is always, right, presenting something second is equivalent to claiming that it represents an individual position. The Ritzgeus comes along and says, the Olam Halacha Ki'ikid Amri. The Ritzgeus comes along and says, no, actually the rule is exact, the exact reverse. You always follow the last position. And then, Miksas HaGaonim Pasku, some Gaonim, whoever they were, ruled, the Mamona Ki'ikid Amri Uv Isura L'Chumra. That we have a new category, right? If you're talking about money, then you follow the second position. But if you're talking about ritual, then you always follow the Machmir position. No mention of the Raiso de Rabbanon. Okay, an objective observer 
would probably say what we have here is an attempt to impose rules where there aren't any. Because right? these traditions are, right, you can claim it's all tradition, but how did five different utterly contradictory traditions arise? Uh, right, so right, you could say that we, we could say that it just fails, right? And the, the bottom line is that if there ever was a tradition about what this text meant, it was lost. And for our purposes, the text might as well not make, not make decisions. Now we can then still apply secondary mechanical rules to right to these things. We could say let's follow, let's follow what the majority. If we take all these positions in every time we get it on, right? We'll try and figure it out. Well, we have five positions here. Let's see which 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 according to three of the rules, what will the outcome be? And right, and we can follow that, or we can just say no. This is just not useful. Right? It's a category error because clearly this is not a text that was in, that was codified that way. And or we could just say like we'll follow other rules like the Rith wins. Okay, we will note that there's a category introduced here that nobody had previously considered, which is the distinction between Mamona and Isura, right, between money and ritual. Right, so we have multiple axes. One axis is the Oraisa versus the Rabana, and the other, right, another axis which depends on the kind of the case. Now, the kind of the case is an issue, right, which really moves us away from the prior text, because the prior text um, dealt it's seen with cases where you could talk about some, where you could talk about um, status in hearing an object. That's a little bit hard with money, and money is like really Humra and Kula are hard with money because they're competing sides. Right, so it may be that everything, right? That maybe that it just makes us really, you know, what? There are lots of rules that only work in one-way cases, and maybe. Right? We need to set up different kinds of rules for, right, for cases where there are considerations on both sides than cases where the considerations all go one way. Now that becomes problematic also because people like to point out when they're disagreeing with somebody else's psak on the ground, when, when the other person's psak is mechanical and I'm just following the, the strict position, they always say, well, you know what, if you're dealing with a balance of, of laws, right, every strict position one way is leaning the position the other way. Right, a strict position, right? Take it, right? A strict position about lashon hara is a lenient position about about protecting other people, from, right? I don't believe, right? Be lashon hara to tell you to say that so and so is going to is going to rip you off, but it's a failure of uh, not to warn you that so and so is a fraud. Right? So most real circumstances, right? There isn't really an absolute chumra and kula, right? There's really just a choice of values. Sometimes one value is more spread. Often there's a specific value and a more general value. But right, so I'd also point out that that's a problem with rules, right? With rules being applied to specific cases. So you can claim that the rules never apply to the cases. The rules about Machmir and Kula always apply to principles, right? I reach the outcome which is right, which is which is the Machmir decision in the abstract about this rule. Even though in this particular case it may right, right, you could do it that way, but rules are problematic that way. Uh, okay. Right, so We've problematized the notion of believing that our original text could say anything about uh, about the extension to Ikadamres, and you can see the temptation. People want there to be rules. They don't want the text to be indeterminate. So they have a, they have a text which has rules. Somebody suggests, wouldn't the rules we have in this text, wouldn't it be useful if they applied here? What they're doing is taking a text that's really about about live cases and trying to apply it, make it a literary principle as opposed to a substantive principle, 
and lots of things go wrong in the process. And you try it, right? That's, and yes? Do any of them give proof text to try to argue their point or no? What would a proof text be? It would be circular. Any text which says this is the halacha is not a text that's following the ju- that, that just that is following your rule. But meaning, right, but like there presumably is practiced halacha at their point on some of the things. So like, well, we know everyone's doing X and it lines up with this. Right, so if we were de novo, right, like, you know, we're, we, there's a point where nobody has made decisions previously and we could just look at practice. But the problem with these rules, presumably all, every principle here arose in a context of practice. Right, so probably right. So they could just be reflecting different, right, different communities, right? Following, and you know, and it's tough to know at this point. It's chicken and egg, right? Yeah. The, the rule, uh, right? So one of the the fun academic discoveries, right, is that the Gemara does often end vehilkasa, right? The Gemara tells you how to paskin, but if you go into manuscripts, you discover that as opposed to the vehilkasa being a text that determined the practice, actually different manuscripts in different locations will change the halacha to match the practice rather than the other way around. Right, so the Hilkasas reflect practice as opposed to creating it in many cases. Uh, okay, right, this is if we're looking at, you know, this is the danger of having somebody who is also academically trained, I guess. Um, okay, I mean, but then, like, you know, it, classically, Yeshivish people know this also. Uh, right, the, but like some of the best academic scholarship of this place come in, in, on many of these issues comes out of Lakewood, out of the Mahon of Aaron Cutler, which does absolutely spectacular work on this kind of thing. Um, okay. So let's take a look at the um, so the Chushi Run comments on on this last thing, which which uh, right he says, Avalachushi Rash Bazal Masechah Rosh Hashanah Reiti Sharavol Fasu Mixas Goyim Sofrim. Right, so now the riff is combined with these Mixas Goyim. The Bishul Torah Halocha Achra Machmir, the Bishul Sofer Sofrim Obedini Momenos Halocha Lashon Achra. So this is uh, right yet another right, another combination of positions. Right here, right here, it's that we. It's right, Lashon Achron. The only mention we saw of, of uh, division was, uh, right, Rashi said that um, we follow the Achron in Sofrim, and now it turns out we follow the Achron in, uh, according to the Rift, in um, Sofrim and Nominos, right? So we imported, right? We've, we've, we've sort of mixed and matched those positions. So there seem to be traditional difficulties even conveying the tradition, right? Because right? this is also mixed us again, yeah? He says, I don't understand what. Where does this distinction come out from? Right? So this is a line, right? If, if it's halacha, we say, if, it's, if you have a tradition, I can't argue with your tradition, but if you want to tell me that it's true, I can't. I can't do it, right? So you can see that already, right, in the time of the run, right, people didn't really, uh, people didn't really, people understood that these principles had broken down. Um, okay. Let's take a look at now what the Ritva does with this um, what it does with this text. Okay, so the Ritva says, the heavy yodea, the chi amrin haloch achra machmir, when we say follow the machmir position, hainu lididan, that's from our perspective. The kevan desveikahu, right, so he's right, because we are in doubt as to which of the two positions, which of the two rabbis we are asking the question to is correct. Naktina desveikahu deraisa lechumra, right, so when we say when we say that you follow the machmir, where you ask the question live, and there are two rabbis, two poskim, whatever you want to call, we don't have to, whatever, right? And one of them takes a machmir position, treif. One of them takes a mekil position, kosher. We follow the machmir. Why? Because we don't know, and we default to the question suffix derais, the rule suffix derais Good. 
But he says, what about those two rabbis themselves? Vadai, Kevin de Shkulinu, on the assumption that they are equal, we don't have a prior decision procedure by Gadol Chachmah Minyan, and they each still think they're correct, they stand by their tradition. Um, right, so that certainly you don't lose just because somebody outstringents you, right? So we don't, right, my whole, my whole issue that we're, people are going to game the system? No, we don't lose, you don't play that way. The people involved in the argument are not subject to these rules. Um, and we say that, okay, so other people... Um, right, follow the machmir. Dafke bein acher kayotzi beze shenechleku alav. Okay, so it's only outside, right? Not only is it the the the, the poskim making the decision get to follow their own positions, the rule doesn't actually apply to you in practice either when you're there. It only applies to the next case. But if you're in that case itself, also chaticha atzma shenechleku ba. Since, okay, so, right, so I come in, right, I'm holding, you know, classically my chicken, well, we won't call my chicken, right, I'm holding my chal, <laughs> which I, right, which I drop the, you know, which I drop the milk into. And I bring my chal in, and Rabbi X says, trait, Rabbi Y says, kosher. So I can now choose which position I want to hold with. Why? So he says, where did the, what did the whole rule, the whole rule we had in the, the, this text apply? He thinks that the rule is, that once a rabbi issued a ruling that was that was stringent, so now the object itself somehow became asur, and therefore I can't eat it. But if it's right, but that that can't be when right when both rabbis are there simultaneously. So if I'm there in the actual moment, I'm utterly right. I'm free. But this is so. This is it. Seems like exactly the opposite of the limitation that you. One of the limitations that you suggest yes. putting on the bodily to begin with, right? Originally, said it could be it's only for a specific object mm -hmm. that we have the ruling, but it doesn't apply, you know. Right. So, right. Science. So, what he says is there is no such thing as a rule. The rulings have no effect ever, except in the individual case. And if they're simultaneous, they have no effect. The only thing is that in future cases, you'll default to the rule of Safi Daraisa Lechumra or Safi Rabban Lakula. That's a crazy. I guess I don't understand that at all. If the person in the first case yeah. can choose who he wants to follow for this case, why would that same thing not apply for people with subsequent identical cases? Um, so I think what he's trying to say, right? So this is right, this this is this is this is good because this is going to push me to where I really want to go. So we'll see if it works out. I think what he wants to say is that. In the moment, what I don't in the moment, what I really do is I become part of their group. I have a choice now, right? The two rabbis there, and, and the rabbi could eat it, so I can just choose to associate myself with that rabbi. Now, if I associated myself with that rabbi permanently, that might be true afterwards also, because I don't have a suffix then. I have an identity. An identity means that when there right that when there are competing rulings, I, right, I don't follow a ruling based on an external rule. 
I follow the rulings within my identity. So if I am a student of Rabbi Salvatric, I will brush my teeth with toothpaste and suds on Shabbat because Rabbi Salvatric ruled that way. And if I'm a student of a rabbi who disagrees with that, then I don't have a suffix when they disagree. Because I'm not making a decision based on the substance. How can I do that? I'm making a decision based on who my teacher is. Uh, right, so I think what he tries to argue is that in the moment, I have the right to choose an identity for that moment because because I'm in there. Once the moment is gone, I can't arbitrarily adopt an identity case by case. Yes? Could it be just a Kabo thing? Meaning, in that moment, a rabbi said, it's okay, okay, go with it. In the future, the halacha was decided with the other rabbi. In that moment, don't just... I don't have to go with him, right? I could go the other way also. I don't have to follow the maker. I have a choice. Right. But, but meaning, in that moment, we're not going to tell you you have no choice when the rabbi's right there. Aha, it's a reverse kavod thing, right? To claim that you're not allowed to follow a rabbi is a diminution of a rabbi. That's nice. That could be. Uh, that could be. Right? So that's another, that's another way of thinking about it, right? But is it right? Uh, okay, right? So, but is it, so two ways of thinking about it. I th- I'm, I'm fine with that one. But a really interesting outcome, right? That the really, the whole, right, the, that our rules... Like really, there's just one rule, which is Safik Darais of the Chumar, Safik Darabalamakula. And that's why Rabbi Shua ben Karko wins. And, right, and then, but the rules don't apply to, right, don't apply to the, to the participants in the conversation. Uh, right, he's going to go on saying, right, he says, Vachi Muchach Hasam Bivamos, Darmirin Hasam, Debechamai, Elu Asu Kidivrehem, Elu Asu Kidivrehem. So that is an amazing. Uh, reduction of a complicated sugya. Right, the Gemara has this amazing conversation that's probably amazing to anyone who comes across it the first time, where the Gemara records a position that Beit Shammai was a wholly theoretical school. That even Beit Shammai never followed their own ruling. Uh, right, that's it. Right, right, the Gemara records, this is an op- right, Robin. Rav and, and Shmuel in, in Babylonia and Rav Yochan and Rish in Israel, right, that their position is wholly theoretical. Uh, and the Gemara also, reco- right, Gemara also records the possibility that no, it was all, Rabbi Shammai never accepted Basil's authority at all. Right, because after all, right, you all, right, this is one of the paradoxes that you, we all don't think about enough, right, that you all know one rule is we don't follow Basco, right? Right, Loba Shemayimi, and the other rule is that we follow Basil because why? Because Basco told us to. Right? So if you think about it, those two are somewhat attention, right? So the Gemara talks says, well, you know, what who says Beit Shammai, right? You know, who says Beit Shammai followed that bus call? Why should they have to? They could say Loba Shemayimi. Right? So you have right, so you have the two extreme positions, right? And then the intermediate position is that Beit Shammai followed their own rulings up until the uh, up until the bus call. So he reduces that sugya to a claim that the Gemara says we obviously accept the position that Beit Shammai and Beit Hill each followed their own. Uh, follow their own position. Now he goes further, and he says, so, so there's a famous, this, the Sumit in Behil and comes down to the question of whether a specific woman, specific marriage is permitted as Yibum, or forbidden as incest. So now, let's assume that the woman isn't one of the great scholars, in question, isn't one of the great scholars of the age. What's she supposed to do? She should just have to follow Behil, right? No. She doesn't have to follow Behil, because as long as she's a member of Beit because by being a member of Beit Shammai, she gains the right to follow Beit Shammai. She's not an external party to the dispute which has to follow rules. 
and she's, a, right, she's, right, she's an actual party to the dispute. Um, right, so, right, so he says, right, um, right, if, he says, look, if she weren't allowed to follow their ruling, they would never have issued it. So you can also, maybe there's a distinction between Beit and Beit Shammai, uh-huh. right? You could say that the ruling about which one was the normative halacha, was it while there, I guess it was while there was still Beit and Beit Shammai. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, we certainly have, there are certainly cases, right, where if you have a yachid and a rabim, right, that the rabim then forced the yachid to not obey their own Ruling. Well, we're gonna have to talk about this text, right? Right. This is right. Right. The way he's reading it right now, you should be. There should never be a case where the rabbin can compel the yachid. Now, it might be we can say, you know, what if you're, if you have a single judicial body, and that judicial right, so then the a vote in a body is binding on the whole. But unless there's a, but unless you've somehow joined yourself into a, right, unless you've had an election, numbers are irrelevant. Or we can say the intermediate he's saying is that numbers are irrelevant, even outside the context of an election, for people who are totally outside the electorate. But as long as right, but within the electorate, right, without a, if there's no, no agreement that this is our, that we're voting, so then everybody can just follow what they want. And this is, I think, right, this is a share I think I first gave here 20 plus years ago. Uh, I called the ideological, the, the halakhic rights of ideological minorities. Uh, right, so yeah, long, if you form yourself as an ideological minority and you don't have a decision procedure, so then numbers are irrelevant. Because what you've done is you've taken an identity, which, right, and, and now you're part of the discussion. You have to be consistent about it. Right? You can't claim that I am... You know, modern Orthodox for this issue and Haredi, and Haredi for that issue, and I'm making my dispute, I'm making my decision solely on the basis of identity, because you don't have a current identity, then you have to have some other basis for your decision. But if you have a general identity, so then numbers become irrelevant, and nobody can tell you that we are more numerous than you, therefore you have to agree. And, if, right, and, we, and the way he argues that is, if we say, as the, right, it seems a reasonable position, like the Beit Shammai, Followed their own position, that means they told other people to follow their position. So the other people must be entitled to follow their position, even though they are not themselves great rabbis. Right? He's working on the assumption, right, that probably the women in that time were not great Talmud Chachamot who reached independent halakhic conclusions on the issue. Right? Probably sociologically, that's a reasonable assumption. Okay. Right. So that's a, right. That to me is like one of the one of the biggest things to to understand about rules. Right. Rules, right? So you can say, right, you have one kind of vision, which is to say that what we want are rules. Our goal is to find rules, and I want, right, because anything other than rules is subjective. I don't want to look at it to be subjective. I want it to follow, right? I want it to be objective. I want everyone to reach the same conclusion. So my goal is to strip all the content out of the halacha and follow rules. What he's arguing, and I think, right, you know, here you get my bias. <laughs> Is that rules are at best bidiyavit? Maybe there are right. Sometimes you can follow you can right. You follow rules if you have no other basis for decision. Meaning you're, you're not part of a live right. You have you're right. You're not part of a live conversation. But if you have a position, then you follow truth. Right? All these rules 
are when you ask somebody else the question because you don't have a position. But if you have a position, so then you are a position. Somebody else should be asking you. Okay, right. So that's right. That to me is like the fundamental attitudinal question as to what, right? As to what are what what are as to what we're looking for? Are we looking to reduce halacha to, algor- to algorithms, or do we say that sometimes for some people, right, the uh, right they're reduced to being they're reduced to being rule followers. Many people is always oh, right. Maybe because you maybe either because you're congenitally incapable of making a decision, or because you are you don't have the education, whatever it may be. And then we can talk about a whole set of issues like. What entitles you to have a position? Does you have to have profound academic scholarship and know the sugya really cold, right? It'll say, you know, some some people would say to have a position, you have to start by knowing all of Shas by heart. Then you become part of the conversation, uh, right? And then, right? And then, you know, then and then we have levels within that. And other people would say, hang on a sec, but now there's Barilan. So now, right? Anybody with you know with basic competence in rabbinic text can know the su- the subject more comprehensively than anybody did hundred years ago. Almost anybody, right? Not Ravadia. Ravadia still knew it better than me. Okay, <laughs> hey, uh, and, and more than you, right? Because not everything is yet. It'll take another twenty years before the databases catch up to Ravadia. Uh, and then the, the radical position would be no. Actually, there are issues about which you can have just moral presuppositions, and the rule, right? And it's not a question of rules, and right? And that's the whole question: of how that fits into halacha, right? You know, should there be issues? I think there should be, obviously where you're entitled to an opinion just because it would be a reduction of what it means to be a human being, not to give you autonomy on that issue. You still have to root it in Torah somehow, but your rooting in Torah doesn't have to be got a Lador status. Uh, right? Or you can argue, which was, I try to argue in print, that it's, you know, some kind of, there's some kind of sliding scale for how much you have to know about what kind of issue, and that relates to how technical the issue is and how, how many other people the issue affects and, right, and, how, right, and how plausible it is to have a moral intuition uh, on its own, on its on its own in that kind of issue, but the Ritva himself seems yeah. to say that the rabbis themselves, whom whom have the conflicting opinions, mm-hmm. each have the ability to um, to maintain their opinion. The initial right. person who asks the Shylock can choose which opinion he wants, right? But it implies, or at least it seems to say that all subsequent people with the Shylock don't have the choice to be like, well, I'm a Talmud of A or I'm a Talmud of B. They get the, the deep, it's almost as if whoever's the makeup position gets to keep doing it for themselves, but that then withers on the vine because everyone else has to follow the, the Mahmir position. No, because Beit Shammai, first of all, only Dereis, it's not Dereis, it's not Dereis. Right, right, but no, because Beit Shammai is, endures. A hundred years after the question is first asked, people in Beit Shammai still get to decide I'm a member of Beit Shammai. Because this only applies to someone who's asking. If you're in Beishama, you're presumably not. We're not asking. Okay, right. So that's a, right. This is a really, right, a really big limit on the on the notion of rules, right? And so I would like I said as the radical thesis would be that all rules are intended as means of resolving doubt. But the ideal position is not to be in doubt. The ideal position is to have an opinion. But we can also, right, we can also talk about whether that is a function, you know, there are, there, are, there are issues which are direct issues of substance, and maybe direct issues of substance, we talk about that. But there are also issues that have past decisions that are embodied in a text that has been given consensus authority. Right, and that's what used to be called, the equivalent of what used to be called a ruling of the Sanhedrin. 
So it might be that textual rules are actually more binding than any of these. And we say, like we say, we accept the authority of the Talmud. And accepting the authority of the Talmud means not only right, accepting the authority of the law of the legal rules baked into the Talmud. But that right, that that really matters whether your rules are a function of uh, right or convinced you that they're part of the text or not. Uh, right? If you think if you think at the end, well, you know what? I'm not convinced that many of the features of this text were intended to convey law. So then that's not the same thing. So it makes a big difference whether you think the features of the text are intended that way or not. Uh, whether in terms of the Gemara and the Mishnah or in terms of us and the Gemara. Uh, right? So, right, so it becomes a very big question whether literary categories have that kind of, um, that kind of impact um, uh, or not. Um, right, so let's, let's, skip to the, let's skip to the last paragraph because I think we're going to run out of time. The last paragraph says... Uh, um, right, so he says, like, what if, right, what, what if we construct a Gemara? There's a Gemara which talks about a particular kind of, a particular case, and two rabbis each issued public proclamations, one of them will have and one of them will have So he said, well, if there are rules, right, what if, right, how can, how can that happen? So his answer is that, um, actually, so the Gemara asks one of the, right, records live, right, that the person who sent out the lenient ruling was asked, right, at the beginning of the last paragraph. The cave of the Rav Asar, Sharimar. Since Rav already said that this thing is prohibited, how are you now claiming it's permitted? Um, the answer is Right. So we have a text that says once one person is Mahmir, and how can the other person be Makil? So the answer is he goes through the structure and the end he says, Okimna the Rabba Bar Barchana Agimare. Agumare uh, Samech, right? That he's relying on his own learning. Okay, right. That at the end is going to be the answer to all claims about rules. Right? All claims about rules apply only when you have no basis for an opinion of your own. Okay, so I'm going to set right. That's that's right. That's what I want to set up as a counter to rule-based decision. Right here, that rule-based right, argue that rule-based decision making is almost always. A, um, is almost always a set up in within the literature as a secondary question, and then the complication will be. But uh, right, but consensus develop over time in favor of rules. So, right, so that right, so the rules themselves begin developing, being developing their own their own authority. Right, to some extent, you have to relate to the past. You might relate to the past. Right, might be that part of part of what you are convinced of is the meaning of the rule. Right, there are all sorts of ways in which they interact. First setting is right is that what is that um, the whenever people try and tell you that the reason this is wrong is because it is against a meta rule, right? So the right so the answer the answer is meta rules only apply when you don't have an, right, when you don't have an opinion about the issue itself. When you have an opinion about the issue itself, meta rules on the whole can't decide. Right? And we we're really talking about is whether you have a right to to an opinion about on the issue itself. Right, because right, that's right. That's 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 the fundamental argument I want to make. Um, then, right, then we have to have much conversation. What does it take? I say the, big, the really big issue then is what does it take to have an opinion, recognizing that not only it, it doesn't only have to be that you have an opinion, you're also allowed to identify with somebody who has an opinion. Right, so even right, you can right, you say, I, read, I follow like so. You know, modern orthodoxy you like to say I follow Rabbi Soloveitchik. Right, that's a way of 
Right? That's a way of saying, like, I know I'm the minority about this issue, but he has the right to an opinion, and I have the right to say that my intuition coheres with his. Right? Who else gets to say that? That's a big issue. Do you have to say that you know, consistently? It's a problem, because nobody ever holds like anybody specifically. His own students don't hold like him specifically, even on the mechanical issues. Right? That's the whole, that's the whole challenge. Okay.